You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. My name is Jamin. Welcome to Citizens Church. This is my son, Asher. Uh, And uh, he's going to start our time by uh, reading a story for us. Long ago, there was a massive kingdom that covered the earth. There was a king over the kingdom, and he is responsible for all of it. He created all of it. Everything in the kingdom is his, under his control. And he is strong, and he's creative and powerful. He's mighty, and he's a warrior, and his enemies are no match for him. He is also a poet, and his words will be around forever. He is unmatched in creativity, unmatched in power, unmatched in strength. He has said about himself that he is good and is loving. He is incredible. One day, three citizens of the kingdom received a special invitation to meet the king. They lived in his kingdom their whole life, but had never met him. The invitation was simply to come and spend time with the king. When the day came, they are brought by one of the king's servants into this massive room in the king's college. Huge pillars so tall you can't see the top of them. One of those rooms that makes you feel like you are the smallest human alive. They are told to wait in the center of a room, and soon the doors would open and the king would come in. Before the servant leaves, he tells them he can't wait to meet you. The three people stand in silence for a moment. Then one of them, whose name is Fearful, turns and sees through a window in the room that the sky had turned gray and storm clouds had rolled in. Fearful leaves the center of the room and goes to look out the window. The closer Fearful gets to the window, the more afraid he becomes. Fearful begins to worry, oh no, what if it storms? What if a storm is bad? What if it floods my house? And Fearful forgets why they were there, forgets about the king, and becomes consumed with what they can do to avoid the storm. Then the second person, whose name is Faithless, begins to look around the room and sees that on the back of the wall is a painting of the king. Faithless is curious and wants to know what the king looks like. The artist who had painted the painting was an enemy of a king, and so the artist painted the king with scowl. His mouth was sharp. His eyes were angry. Faithless was troubled by what he saw. Faithless heard the king was kind, but in the painting, he didn't look kind. Faithless had heard he was good, but in the painting, he looked mean. Faithless knew the king was a warrior, and so he began to wonder, what if he's angry with me? What if he's cruel to me? What if he hurts me? And Faithless stands at the back of the room, frozen in front of a picture. The third person is named God-fearing. God-fearing remains in the center of a room, watching the doors. Suddenly, they open, and in walks the king. He is everything everyone said he was. There was a beauty to him and a seriousness to him. He comes in, and he makes the large room seem small. His presence is overwhelming, but his face is kind. And fearful by the window is so consumed with the store, fearful doesn't notice the king has entered the room. And faithless in the back is so afraid of the picture, he keeps his back turned to the king. He knows he is there, but because of the picture, he is afraid to turn around. But God-fearing stays in the center. He knows about the storm, but is more concerned about the king. God-fearing knows about the painting, but believes what the king has said about himself. As the king moves toward God-fearing, he feels torn. There's something about the king that makes God-fearing want to be close to him, but something about him that makes that seem impossible. His legs get shaky. He bends to his knees, kneeling on the ground. The king is so great, 
and God-fearing is not. He feels that difference like a weight that forces him down. The only thing he feels worthy to do is stare at the ground. Then God-fearing feels the hand of the king lift his face and welcome his eyes on his kindness. The weight is lifted. He looks up at the king. The king speaks to him and says, I'm looking forward to getting to know you. And at the sight of his face and the sound of his voice, God-fearing is caught up in the king's greatness and grace and melts into wonder and reverence and worship. He fears the king. The end. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is in sight. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to consider your word, to learn from you. Our, our hope this morning is that we might uh, become people who fear you, Lord. That the ungodly fear that, uh, Lord, can corrode the heart and that leads to foolishness, that you would eradicate that. And the fear that, that makes us wise would settle on us, that we might uh, be caught up in your greatness and your grace and move toward you with all of our lives. We love you. Amen. I want to start this morning with a disclaimer. I have a friend who had never seen the movie Braveheart. That's not the disclaimer. Um, uh, so one night he drove to uh, Blockbuster. This was a really long time ago. Uh, and he rented Braveheart as a VHS, if you remember what those are. And if you remember, Braveheart's like a four-hour movie, and the movie's so long that they had to put it on two different tapes. Well, my buddy didn't know that, and he thought that he had just been given two of the exact same tapes by accident. And so he grabs a tape, which happened to be the second part of the movie, and he put it in the VCR, and the movie starts right in the middle of a battle scene. It was like swords and horses and arrows and fighting and all of it, and uh, when that happened, he just thought, oh, this is great. They're, they're just jumping right in. And uh, it took him like an hour before he figured out that the other tape was the first part of the movie that you actually needed to understand what was going on. And so there was like a whole two hours that he had, he had missed. Um, he lacked wisdom. But uh, this morning is our second week in the fear of the Lord. And, and I will lean really heavy on, on what we already established last week. So last Sunday was part one. This week is part two. This week is the second tape. That's my disclaimer. Uh, the disclaimer is if you missed last week, this might feel like starting a movie right in the middle. And, and you'll need to go back and, and catch last week for, for all of it to make sense. But what I do want to do is I want to, to set up the conversation again. I want to resituate us in the tension of the fear of the Lord. I want to return to the story from last week and then hopefully take the next step together towards the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1 and Proverbs 9 both say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to be wise, if you want to be wise, which you should, mostly because the opposite of being wise is, is being a fool. There's something that has to mark your life if you want to be wise, and that's the fear of the Lord. So we've said this, that wisdom has a posture, it's low, it's humble. Wisdom has a pace, it's slow, we become wise over time. Wisdom has a person, it's Jesus, we become wise in relationship with him. But there's a, there's a fuel underneath all of that. There's something that, that ties all of that together, and it's the fear of the Lord. So how do I assume wisdom's posture? I fear the Lord. 
How do I uh, learn patience for wisdom's pace? You fear the Lord. How do I have confidence in my relationship with Jesus, wisdom personified? Well, you fear the Lord. The starting place and staying place is the fear of the Lord. And like we said last week, there's a word in that sentence that we don't like that causes us pause, and the word is fear. So the question has to be, what is that? What does it mean to fear the Lord? I thought fear was a bad thing. I thought the Bible tells us don't fear. And that's true. Joshua 1.9 says, haven't I commanded you be strong and courageous? Don't be afraid or discouraged. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Matthew 14, Jesus walks on water and tells them, don't be afraid. And then they don't listen, and so he corrects Peter because of his fear. You even see in the Bible times when people are told to not be afraid of God. 1 Samuel 12 says, uh, Samuel tells the people, don't be afraid of God. In Genesis 3, God calls to Adam and says, where are you? And Adam says, I heard you coming and I was afraid. One of the consequences of sin is that enjoyment of God is replaced with being afraid of God, hiding from him. The most repeated command in Scripture is do not be afraid. So what does the Bible say about fear? It says be courageous, don't be afraid, and don't be afraid of God. But if you don't want to ruin your life as a fool, fear the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What do we make of that? That feels like mixed messages from the Bible about fear. If we take it all together, here's what it means. The Bible teaches that there is an ungodly fear and a godly fear. There is a kind of fear that makes you foolish, and there's a kind of fear that makes you wise. And so part of, of knowing how to fear the Lord even is knowing the difference between those kinds of fears, knowing the difference between godly and ungodly fear. We need to be able to distinguish between the two, and it's complicated. It's important, but it's really, it's really difficult to kind of dig through that and, 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 and make that distinction. And so as I wrestled through how to make those distinctions, as I wrestled through how to best capture ungodly fear versus the fear of the Lord, the fear that makes you foolish versus the fear that, that makes you wise, what I, what I came up with was a little story little parable on the fear of the Lord. I asked myself, how would I try and explain all of this to my kids in a way that they understood, but also that helped me understand? And my answer was to explain it in a parable. And that's what Asher just read for us this morning at the beginning. I shared it last week. I want to lean on it again and use it as a tool again. Instead of hearing it from me again, though, I thought it'd be nice for you to hear from someone else, and, and Asher volunteered. So if you think back on the parable with me, in that room, in those three characters, you have the fear that makes you foolish and the fear that makes you wise. The king represents God. Then you have two characters that represent ungodly fear, fearful and faithless. And then you have God-fearing who represents the fear of the Lord. Fearful by the window, staring at the storm, represents an ungodly fear of life. So consumed with how to avoid what they fear that they miss God. Faithless in the back by the picture, staring at the scowl, represents an ungodly fear of God. So afraid of the distorted picture of God that they can't, they can't turn to him. And God-fearing in the center, surrendered to the greatness and grace of the king, represents the fear of the Lord. So that's how we've defined the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is so taken by God's greatness and grace that we move towards him in all of our lives. So by God's greatness, we mean this. Let's just unpack this for a minute. By God's greatness, we mean God's creative power. Psalm 33, 8 says this, let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in all of him. For he spoke and it came into being. He commanded and it came into existence. 
uh, God's greatness. He spoke and it came into being. We didn't do that. We don't have those kinds of skills. By greatness, we also mean God's impeccable character. The, the hosts of heaven sing about God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The repetition of the word holy means that God is complete in his perfection. Glorious and holy and beautiful and altogether set apart as the, as the one God that's like our God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and you know what? No one is singing that about me. It's not true about me. And no one's singing that about you. It's not true about you. Uh, God's greatness is God's creative power, God's impeccable character. And if it's his greatness alone, he's unapproachable. If it's his greatness alone, he's inaccessible and he's terrifying, but tied up and tethered to his greatness and grace is, is his grace. In, in Psalm 33, the same psalm, it says this, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. His steadfast love is the work of Jesus on our behalf, that through Jesus we can be near God and be right with God. He does not see our sin and kick us out of his kingdom. Through Jesus, he overcomes the distance between us and him, and he invites us in close that we might enjoy his greatness and his grace. So he's like a king with an overwhelming presence and a kind face. He's like a king who lifts weighted faces and welcomes broken people and invites us to look up from the ground and look into his love and beauty and look into his greatness and grace. And so what the fear of the Lord is not is it's not being afraid of life and forgetting God. What the fear of the Lord is not is it's not being afraid of God and moving away from him. What the fear of the Lord is is being so taken by the greatness and grace of God that we move towards him in all of our life. And that makes us wise. Makes us wise. Because if we move towards him with all of our life because of his greatness and grace, we're moving towards him with our relationships and our money and our suffering and our conflict and our speech and our art and our gifts and our time, all of it. So see something for, for a second. The fear of the Lord then is best understood by what it produces in the person who fears the Lord. Um, one of the things I noticed when I started digging into the fear of the Lord was that when theologians try and explain it, they all, to the person, they all just start throwing out synonyms to try to define it. So what is the fear of the Lord? Well, it's awe, and it's reverence, and it's worship, and it's trembling. One of the words that they use is the word wonder, which is why we put it in the series title. But the fear of the Lord is such a complex and weighty thing that even the scholars, when they're trying to define it, they just surround it with words, reverence, respect, awe, wonder, delight. But see this, see this. This was so helpful for me. While it's hard to explain on paper, it's easy to spot in a person. It's easy to see coming out of someone's life. If someone is moving away from God, whether that's doing what's right in their own eyes, whether they're moving away because they're controlled by an ungodly fear, maybe they're rebelling against the God that they're afraid of. If I am moving from him, I do not fear him, and that leads to foolishness. But where there is movement towards God in response to his greatness and grace. That is the essential mark of the fear of the Lord. Here is Michael Reeves again in his book that Bleeker will buy for you. Uh, he says this, the Lord looks on the heart and is pleased when he finds it quaking in wonder, love, and praise. For the nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him is not a groveling, shrinking fear. He is no tyrant. It is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is, and that, therefore, 
leans on him in staggered praise and faith. Do you hear it? Leans on him, rests in him, stays close to him, move towards him. That's the fear of the Lord. I'm so overwhelmed by, I'm so taken with the greatness and grace of God that I move towards him with all of my life. So I want to pick back up where we ended last week. Last week we ended, and I just asked this question, where are you in the room? As you hear the explanations, if it's fearful, is the, uh, by the window, staring at the storm is an ungodly fear of life. Faithless in the back, staring at the scowl is an ungodly fear of God. God-fearing in the center is surrendered to the greatness and grace of the king. Where are you in that? Where do you find yourself? If your answer is, I'm right in the center, I always have been, I always will be, you're probably missing something, if that's your answer. My answer is, more days than I'd like to admit, I feel like I'm staring at the storm and the scow at the same time. Last Sunday, I had a handful of conversations with some of you, and most of them went something like this. Hey, I feel like I'm by the window. How do I get to the center of the room? Hey, I feel like I'm staring at the scow, and I want to turn. I just need some help. What do I do? I, I, I want to fear God, but I'm really afraid of life. I want to fear God, but I'm really afraid of God. I would rather be God-fearing, but I'm fearful. I would rather be God-fearing, but I'm faithless. What do I do? Is that anybody else? If not, we can dismiss, and you can start the Super Bowl party early if you want. But um, what I want to do is I want to spend the rest of our time there answering the what do I do question. How do I move from ungodly fear to the fear of the Lord? The first thing you do is be encouraged. Be encouraged. The fear of the Lord, oh, please hear this. The fear of the Lord is I am so taken by God's greatness and grace that I move towards him in all of my life, and that includes moving toward him with my ungodly fear. The question, what do I do? If you would raise your hand and say, I'm fearful, I want to be God-fearing. I'm faithless, I want to be God-fearing. You know what you're saying is, I want to move towards God which means somewhere in there is fear of the Lord. It's godly fear and ungodly fear existing in the same heart. Praise God that his mercy makes room for that kind of mixture. What we want to believe is we want to believe that it's all or nothing. It's either all fearful or all fear of the Lord. It can't be both. It's either all faithless or it's all God-fearing. It can't be both. And that's not true. That's not true. Why would the Bible over and again tell us to not be afraid if God didn't think that that would be a struggle? Maybe the frequency of the command, in part, is God's way of saying, I know how hard it will be to keep the command. I know how scary life is. God is not surprised that ungodly fear is part of our lives. He's not. And so it's not all or nothing. The response of, I'm over here, and I want to be over there. I'm fearful. I want to be God-fearing. I'm faithless. I want to be God-fearing. You know what kind of response that is? It's a fear of the Lord response. It's a wise response. The response that should trouble, and, and, and maybe this response is in the room. I don't know. The, the dangerous response is actually the response of apathy. If you can hear about a God that is great and gracious and be unmoved, unaffected, 
That's the clearest sign of someone who lacks the fear of the Lord. Uh, somebody who does not believe that God is as great as he is, somebody who does not believe that, that, that we are in as much need of grace as we are, the spiritual shrug where there should be a spiritual shudder is the response of the godless. Someone would dare to think less of God and more of themselves, but the response of honesty, the, the what do I do, I'm here, I want to be there, that's a wise response, so be encouraged. The first thing to do the first thing to do if you're asking that question, what do I do, is to thank God that what you want you already have. Praise God. Some of the fear of the Lord that you wish marked your life is already present in your heart because even the smallest desire for ungodly fear to be replaced with the fear of the Lord is movement towards God and movement towards him is the mark of those who fear him. Be encouraged. Celebrate the win. We don't get a lot. Celebrate that win. Okay, fearful. Let's talk about fearful by the window. Fearful is the ungodly fear of life. It's not simply being afraid uh, because life is scary, but, but my fears have become so controlling. This is what's true about fearful. My, fearful has, my, my fears have become so controlling. My life has become about avoiding the storm, trying to prevent what I fear, and I have moved from God because of it. I've distanced from him. Life is meant to be lived in the center of the room, centered around God, and I have been drawn by a fearful heart to a place where all I can see is what I'm afraid of. What do I do if that's me? Very simply, a very simple turn, at least a starting place, is to talk to God about that. Maybe you would even write out a prayer. Maybe when we give space and service this morning, you would take time to talk to him about your fears. Here's why that matters. So often when our fears control us, we operate like God doesn't exist and one way to remind our hearts of his presence is to pray. Simple way to remind our hearts of his presence. David does this in Psalm 27. We, we walked through this whole psalm last August. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I dread? It's a prayer that he's praying about his fear. The rest of the psalm is about this conflict between his faith and his fear. And that's what we should do, to pray to God. If we feel fearful, we feel uh, consumed by an ungodly fear of the scary things in life, talk to God about that. And if I could encourage you to put some specific language to that prayer, I think it's really important and can be really freeing to fill in some blanks. The first is to name the what if. Um, I think most of our fear fits under a few large categories. It's fear of rejection. So the what if sounds like what if the people I love most don't love me back? Fear of loss. What if the things I love most I can't keep? Fear of failure. What if what I most want to accomplish I'm unable to achieve as a student, as a parent, as a professional? Or fear of death. What if I get sick? What if I am sick and healing never comes? Um, I live a lot of my life by the window, and here's what it sounds like for me. What if... Citizens Church doesn't work out. She's doing well, but churches fall apart all the time, and that's fear of loss. What if I don't have the character I need to be the person that I want as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor? It's fear of failure. What if I get sick? Um, mental unhealth runs in my family, and so what if a season of mental suffering comes that I never get out of? It's fear of death. That's my stuff from my fearful heart. Welcome to church. But in, in taking the what if to God, you, you know what I'm not doing? 
I'm not informing him. He knows. I'm doing something else. I'm informing my heart that my fears have not erased God. Then there's another blank to fill in. And I think it's really important. It might be, it might be foreign. It's connected to the what if. The other one is to answer the question, who am I if? Our fears are connected to where we find identity and meaning. There's a great cultural example of this. It's, it's maybe a little silly, but it's in the movie Encanto. Have you seen it? If you're like me, you've, you've seen it more than you ever planned to see it. Um, the movie is great, but the music is really great. The soundtrack was done by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who did Hamilton. And there's a song in the movie called Surface Pressure. I apologize in advance for those of you who will have this stuck in your head for the rest of the sermon. It's sung by a character uh, who has a gift of strength. But that gift is starting to fade, and she sings about how scared she is that she's losing her strength. And she used to be able to carry it all and handle it all, but not anymore. And so she sings about that fear, and she's singing about it to her sister. You'll hear that in the lyrics. She's trying to make her case that she can still be strong for everyone else. And here's what she says. Give it to your sister. Your sister's older. Give her all the heavy things we can't shoulder. Who am I if I can't run with the ball? Give it to your sister. Your sister's stronger. See if she can hang on a little longer. Who am I if I can't carry it all? Give it to your sister, it doesn't hurt, and see if she can handle every family burden. Watch as she buckles and bends but never breaks. Give it to your sister, never wonder if the same pressure would have pulled you under. Who am I if I don't have what it takes? The kids saw the movie before me, and then we watched it together. And after that song, they looked and said, Dad, wasn't that great? And I said, no, it wasn't great. (laughs) I feel so judged right now. But you hear it. Who am I if? Identity so wrapped up in being able to be strong and do it all and accomplish it all. But if something weakens me, if I no longer have what it takes, if my fears come true, who am I then? See, our fears are connected to the things in life that give us meaning. Like for me, in my own fears, I'm not asking, what if the church down the road doesn't work out? I hope it does depending on the church, right? (laughs) Just kidding. That's a joke. Um, I'm afraid of, of what if somehow citizens falls apart because so much of who I am and who I hope to continue to be is, is tied up in this place. And I don't even mean that in any unrighteous or idolatrous way. I think there's something good about that. The same is true for all of my other fears, right? They are tied to the very things that are the most meaningful to me. Fears are connected to the things that give us meaning. Who am I then if my fears come true? And I wonder, friend, if you've given much thought to that with your fears. I wonder if you've given much thought to the relationship between your fears and your identity and the ways that fears attack the things in your life that that you find meaning in. Who am I if the people I love most don't love me back? Who am I if the things I love most I can't keep or the things I love most I never get? Who am I then? Who am I if I never accomplish what I want to? Who am I if I can't sustain what I've achieved? Who am I if I get sick? Who am I if I stay sick? Who am I if if a church crumbles? Who am I if I can't be the dad I want to be? Who am I if mental suffering comes and stays? Have that what-if conversation with God. Have that who-am-I-if conversation with God, would you? And here's why it's so important. 
to take those questions to God in prayer. When we take those questions to him, what if, who am I if? When we don't simply obsess over them by the window, but we move towards God and take those questions to God, we open our lives up to his answers. Answers like we find in Romans 8, 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, what will always, no matter what, be true about you is that you're loved by God in Christ. And whatever you add to the list, angels, rulers, height, depth, life, death, whatever you want to add to that list, what can separate you from that love? Not a thing. Nothing. And what we find as we move towards God, what we're reminded of at the foundational level of what makes us us, at the foundational level of our soul, is that in Jesus we have a meaning that our fears can't take away. Identity that we're not one what if away from losing. When we move towards God with our fears, you know what he invites us to do? He invites us to complete a different kind of sentence. Instead of what if, he invites us to say even if. Even if the people you love most don't love you back, the love you most need you already have in Christ. You're loved. Even if the things I love most I can't keep, I have an inheritance that is unfading and imperishable that is kept in heaven with Jesus. Even if the church crumbles, I am still part of the church about whom Jesus said the gates of hell will never prevail. Even if mental suffering comes and stays, I am still held together body, mind, and soul by the Prince of Peace. And I trust him for my sanity. What would that sound like? Talk to God about the what if. Be honest about the, the way it's, it's connected to the who am I if. Acknowledge before him the ways that fears and identities are tied up together. Ask your fear questions and then look for his answers. Look for his answers. You know what will happen? And I don't mean do it once. I mean commit yourself to doing that over time. And if you do, you know what will happen? You will still probably be really afraid of a lot of things. I know I am. But at the very least, I am fighting the ungodly fear and feeding the fear of the Lord and what I'm doing is I am inching my way with God away from the window. That's what the wise do. Faithless is in the back by the picture. Faithless represents the ungodly fear of God. And what do we do if we're controlled by that kind of fear? We saw last week passages like Exodus 20 and 1 Samuel 12 that say, don't be afraid of God. Instead, fear God. So there's a way to be afraid of God. There's a way to fear God. And the question has to be, what is the difference? And the difference is, Fearing God or being afraid of God, uh, when I am afraid of God, it means I don't believe by faith that God is who he's revealed himself to be. Faithless can't turn and see the king. He can't turn and move towards the king because he has put his faith in the picture. Think about that. He believes in the scowling king who has been portrayed in the picture, and so he misses the kind king who invites him to be close and won't move towards him. And it's belief. It's a, it's a faith. It's just faith in the wrong object, right? Like faithless for many of us, that plays out as having a picture of God in our minds, and it's that picture that's captured our hearts more than the picture that God offers of himself. Like, friends, I have conversations with people every week, probably every day, about God. It's one of the joys of the job. It really is. But I can't tell you how many of those conversations ultimately find their way to conversations about the distorted view of God so many of us have. 
the conversation starts about a job change, or it starts about parenting, or it starts with a theological question, or it starts about some social issue or some point of pain. But as we talk and as we dig, it makes its way to, I think God is scowling at me. I just, somewhere really deep in here, I believe that's true about God. That's God's facial expression towards me as a scowl. Disappointment, anger. Underneath our question, underneath our religious actions is a view of God that's different than how he described himself. Like one of the most heartbreaking examples of this is how many of us believe the suffering in our present is God's punishment for our past. Have you ever felt that? You point at something presently painful and say, God is punishing me because I did this or because I believe this or because I... Look, God uses suffering to shape us. Yes, our pain has a purpose in the hands of God. Yes, we talk about that all the time. But God is not punishing you, Christian. Every ounce of punishment for your sin, past, present, and future, was dealt with in the cross of Christ. Jesus says he drinks the cup of God's wrath. That means every drop of wrath towards you for the wrong that you've done. Jesus took that. And you know what's left in that cup? Nothing. It's completely dry. How do we know? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Punishment for sin stayed in the ground. New life in Jesus walked out of the tomb. And so now all that God has for you is cup after cup of grace and mercy. And yes, tied up in that mercy is discipline and pruning. He disciplines those that he loves. But that's not the same as punishment. Discipline is restorative. Punishment is punitive. The pain in your life, Christian, is not and will never be God's punishment for your sin. On the cross, Jesus does not say, I will take some of it. On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. And yet, there is part of me that still believes that if any of my what-ifs came true, it would be because I deserved it. God punishing me through it. Where, I wonder, does that come from? (laughs) Who told me God was like that? Who told us God? Who told us his face wears a scowl? Who told us his mouth is sharp? Who told us his eyes are angry? Not only that, why do we believe it? Why do we place our faith in that? You know what we need is we need a portrait of God that will challenge the scowl. We need a view of him that will expunge the cruel picture from our mind and replace it with a view of him so powerful and so compelling that we move towards him with all of our life. We need an image of God that is true and good and pure and right. And I have good news. We have that in Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are made, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We have it in Jesus. And as God, Jesus is the portrait of God. The invisible made visible. But it's not just in Jesus. It's in the words that Jesus gives us about God. It's in the picture that Jesus gives us to adopt about God. Like I often catch myself in a lie. And the lie is that uh, somehow Jesus is the kind one, but God is kind of temperamental and cold. Like uh, Jesus wears a smile, but, but God wears a scowl. And theologians have a word for that. It's called heresy. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. But not only that, but Jesus gives us a very specific image of God as it relates to how we should view his relationship with us. And and here's where I think we might 
we might get some help if we need to turn from the picture towards God. When Jesus talks about the God he reveals, do you know what he calls him? Father. He talks to him as a loving father. So Jesus, as the image of God, offers his image of God and it's father. He doesn't describe a king's scowl. He describes a father's face. He prays in John 17 to his father and says, I want them to love you with the love that you have loved me with. The father loves the son. He's a loving father, and the son knows it, and the son is so taken by that love. And so Jesus describes God in that way as a loving father. But not just that, he wants us to know him like that. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He has made a way for us to come and enjoy his loving Father and call him our loving Father. What is the parable of the prodigal son, if not a story aimed at changing the king's scowl into a father's face? The son runs away, breaks the father's heart, comes to the end of himself and says to himself, there's no way I can return to a father. Maybe I can return to a master. There's no way I can come home a son. I'll try to come home as a slave. And so he has a speech. Father, I'm no longer worried that you be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. And before he can even make it to the porch, the father meets him on the road. And before he can even finish his speech, the father kisses his face. And before he spends one moment as a slave, the father clothes him as a son and, and, and calls out, bring a son's robe and bring a son's ring and bring a son's shoes because my son was dead and is alive. My son was lost and is found. My son is home. Never a moment he considered being his master. He was and is and only would be his father. And Jesus points and says, that's God. That's who he is. He is no tyrant. He does not want slaves who serve him. He wants children who love him. So he does not scowl at sinners. He searches for sons and daughters to meet with grace and love that we might know him as father just like Jesus does. And so Jesus says, when you pray, pray to our father in heaven. Paul says we've not been given a spirit of fear to cower into slavery, but a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Father, can you turn, friend? Can you turn? Can you see a loving, heavenly Father's face over and again welcoming you, over and again clothing you, over and again loving you? And so maybe a prayer you could pray is simply to say this, God, you are my great and gracious Father. You're my great and gracious Father. And a way to move from ungodly fear of God is to not just tell Him who He is, but turn to Him and tell Him who He is to you. You are my great and gracious Father. And that kind of prayer is a God-fearing prayer. That's the kind of prayer that fears the Lord. That's the kind of prayer that wages war against the distorted picture and follows the image that Jesus gives us all the way to the very heart of God. There is an old poem on the fear of the Lord by an old English theologian named Frederick Faber who lived in the 1800s. I found it in Reeves' book. It ties together the love of the Father, and it ties together the fear of the Father. And it says that a love response to a loving Father is the godly fear of the Lord. I want to read it, and then we'll spend some time in prayer. Would you maybe just assume a posture of prayer while we do this? The poem goes like this. I feel thee most a Father when I fancy thee most near. 
and thou comest not so nigh in love as thou comest, Lord, in fear. They love thee little, if at all, who do not fear thee much. If love is thine attraction, Lord, fear is thy very touch. Love could not love thee half so much if it found thee not so near. It is thy nearness which makes love the perfectness of fear. We fear thee because thou art so good and because we can sin. And when we make most show of love, we are trembling most within. And Father, when to us in heaven thou shalt thy face unveil, then more than ever will our souls before thy goodness quail. Our blessedness will be to bear the sight of thee so near, and thus eternal love will be but the ecstasy of fear. Let's pray to our great and gracious Father. Lord, we love you. Lord, we need you. And we just ask that you would do the kinds of things that only you could do, God, that you would begin to pick apart and break us free from the ungodly fear that controls so many of our lives. For those, God, who would say, I'm, I'm, I'm over here by the window and I am consumed with an ungodly fear of life, I pray, God, that we could and brother, sister, would you even now maybe that we could just confess to you, we could pray to you, we could offer you, here's my what if and here's my who am I if and I'm asking God that you would replace those with even if. And know this, friend, that maybe if you're in a season of suffering, maybe you would say so many of my what ifs have already come true and they've been realized. I believe about God that there's extra grace for the kind of fear that comes from living through your fears. Matthew 12 says about Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not put out. He's gentle, but he's especially gentle with the wounded. So where your present fears are tied up in present suffering of some kind, I believe not putting out the flame and not breaking the bruised reed means he might just come to you and sit with you and remind you of his love and give you grace upon grace and remind you that just being here right now is an act of faith and an act of a godly fear of God. Maybe for others what is needed is, is for the scowl to be challenged with the loving, kind Father's face who loves his children, who welcomes us in close, who lifts our faces to look at him. Help us believe that about you, God. Help us believe that about you. We love you. We need you. We fear you, God. We fear you. The kind of fear that is the ecstasy of love, the kind of fear that is the accumulation of a heart of worship and adoration and wonder and delight. You're worthy, God.